doing? I'm good. How about you? Good. It's uh, kind of like a drama day, but it's all right. I know. Did you want to tell me about that? No, no, not on here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, not on here. Another That's time. Like, it's like a offline subject for sure. Not on here. Gotcha. Righto. All right. Well, okay. Amy, uh, welcome to But Did You Die podcast. Thank you. We finally get to do it. Yeah, I know, right? It's only been, what, a month or two? Yeah, it's been a little bit of time. Uh, there's been a lot of things going on, uh, obviously, on both of our sides. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the other day we had a really awesome conversation about a lot of different things. So I don't know if you want to, uh, if you have like a, um, an outline of what you want to discuss. Uh, or, or how about let's start with uh, introducing yourself. Okay. So I am Amy Detterman. Uh, I am an executive coach. Um, and former professor. So I started off in the emergency room. My background is nursing and emergency trauma. Um, I love the teamwork aspect, leadership aspect. So I got my master's degree in human resource management. And from there, I got my doctorate in business management. So I switched to the other side and did healthcare consulting for a little bit and um, worked as a taught as a professor at one of the universities locally here in Illinois and taught business and entrepreneurship and uh, analytics. And then now I'm, I've started my own business two years ago and doing consulting value added solutions and executive coaching. So Craig and I go, Craig and I go back a few years, um, but that, that's kind of how it all started back in the, the trauma healthcare kind of days. So that's how I got here. And I'm glad to be here because this is really interesting stuff. Yeah, no, it's definitely, uh... Being an entrepreneur is definitely a different ball game altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of help me understand. Uh, and probably like just people in general, right? So you're an executive coach, correct? Right. And as an executive coach, you obviously coach executives to either transition or to become better at what they do. Right. Yeah, I, I honestly do both. Um, it started off doing career transitions. So best practice in human resources is to have a coach available to help transition when there's an employee termination or, or any reductions in force. Um, it makes me think of the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney. Um, Never where, saw it. Okay. He goes around and he's the one who has to fire people um, when there's reductions in force and hand them the information. And it's very technical and mechanical how he does it Uh, but the best practice is to have somebody there to actually follow up with you and my services go beyond eap so eap is a great service but they don't get into the things that make transitioning out of a job really really hard Um, so not only do we work on resumes interviews um, and basic skill sets but we take a look at you Um, i say we because i have a colleague that helped me but the research is pretty astounding on the impact of job loss on your life. It, um, the stress level from losing your job is equivalent to that of losing your spouse. And I don't think we give that as much credit as we ought to as far as the jobs. Because they'll say, oh, it's just a job. And, but it's not. 
it, that that's your social network. That's your income. That's your security. That is your entertainment and that which you've put your passion into for however many years. And all of a sudden that's stripped away and you're just, you know, good luck with that. And so we address all of that on a holistic level. Um, it, it's, it's impactful. The more research I do, the, the more passionate I am about making sure I do it right. So that's how it all started. And then from that, I got into helping executives just with their day-to-day. They either want to get better or decide, do I want to stay? Do I want to go? Or they just want that sounding board, you know, is this decision the right decision or is there a bias or what's going on here? Um, and, and you know this, Craig, it's lonely at the top, right? So oh, yeah. when you're in charge, um, the burden of leadership is that it's you. And when you get to um, a really competitive executive environment, you know, who do you, who do you have as a sounding board? Who's that peer that's going to be trusted without question? Hopefully there's somebody like that in your workplace, but, at the executive level, you're never quite sure. I don't think, um, you know, if something's going to work against you or how that goes. So I don't, when you're in charge, who do you go to? Who's your trusted advisor? That's a peer. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, do, you ever, <laughs> do you ever feel like you w- would just want somebody who's completely outside, not related to anything solely your advocate? No. Just I, to bounce things off of. Uh, I would see that as biased, right? And that's just me, right? So I can't say I would want somebody to just be my advocate. I would want somebody to be honest. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, You know, just to tell me me the truth, right? Like if I'm totally doing this up, tell me the truth. Um, And that's probably more what I was leaning to that not your advocate, but just you know, we're not there to undermine you, but to break it down and look at the technique and theory of, you know, is there a bias here? Here's what's going on in your organizational development practice or anything like that. That's just straight facts. But yeah, somebody to give you the bad news too. But yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need somebody to lay out the bad news. Um, Right. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hijack your conversation. So I'm going to, be quiet no 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 it's okay no no no. it's good uh it's a legitimately really well-placed question that a lot of people probably need to understand more Uh, not only of themselves but of the people around them right Mm -hmm. uh you you gotta surround yourself with people that one are similar to you um but at the same time that are not you and will almost drive you kind of like a little insane, right? Sure. Um, because if you don't, you really don't have a good vibe of what's going on generally. Uh, and it, it, it's a conversation that, you know, at leadership levels at, you know, my level, we, we have a lot of, you know, which is, you know, people don't tell us the truth, right? Right. But people are going to tell us like the success part. Right. And when you do have success, um, and, and let, let me just take a perfect example. So, uh, say deploying overseas is a success for you. Well, normally that takes a lot of time. Uh, so nobody sees the two to three years of time that you've put into to get through school, then to get through 
you know, training and advanced training, then you, you finally deploy overseas, you know, for some guys that, you know, go to basic training and, you know, they get lucky and they end up in the right unit and that unit gets tagged. That's pure luck. But if you're a healthcare professional, it's, it's a lot different. You have to train here, train there, train here. And then you finally get selected and boom, you're off, you're off to the races. So the, the success is, is that one moment walking out the door. Then there's the success of what little battles you win down range. Same thing happens here. So, you, so you, in order to build an organization, and once again, build an organization, mm-hmm. the successes are placed in the people you put in certain leadership roles and the direction that you give them as far as your intent as the commander or the CEO, right? So you're like, and I hear this a lot, right? Like, and we'll, we'll just take one example. We'll say um, you want to have like a, let's say BLS, because BLS is pretty common, right? Right. So basic life support. Let's say you want to have a basic life support class. Okay, what well, does that help build relationships? My answer to that question is yes, right? Mm-hmm. So I would send these people out to go and train other people on BLS. And as you're training them, you're building a relationship with that part of the, the organization, another organization, right? And if right. it's within the structure, then that education department is building relationships with the ER or the ICU or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. OB. Psych, right? Right. Uh, even the executive teams, right? So sometimes it's required that, hey, you know what? We're going to make sure that the executives know what BLS is, right? Because what if somebody starts dying or arrest you know, right in front of them? Well, they, they're going to be the first ones there. So they need to learn how to do BLS. So we, we teach that uh, in the military to everybody, right? And so it builds a relationship. So now you go and you, you know, you hear we're like, well, you know, we don't have enough money to run that. Okay, well, you've not only killed a program, but you've killed an entire relationship with all these different components. Right. Right. And, and so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no. So it's it, it that's that's like the perfect example of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how to build something, and then you destroy it, and you've killed all these relationships, and now people see you as the executive, as the bad guy. Sure. And then I have like, a question beyond that though. Um, so now you get into the unfunded kind of mandates things that you have to have these certifications, but we're cutting your training budget. So do you train within or do you go outside? But right. also um, getting everybody to head the same direction, right? So, you know, you're, you mentioned building relationships and getting everybody to be successful through relationships and team building and synergy. Mm-hmm. And I, I would bring up questions that would say, how do you motivate them the same way? Where's the motivation? So, um, and I know this is a little bit of a jump, but I think you'll probably follow. Um, if there's a cash bonus at the back end of something, what are you truly motivating? So if you, again, in the business world, if you motivate people to have create, um, eight accounts for every customer as your measure of success. And then you find out that they're creating ghost accounts because if they don't, they're going to get fired because they didn't hit their eight. 
So gotcha. yes, you got the short-term result, but then the long-term result is that they cheated. So evaluating where your motivations are, if you want everybody to get BLS certified, is it because they're, are you giving them a higher hourly rate because they are certified? Or do they get the benefit of a better position? Or um, I don't know if, if you were talking about a deployment with this one or not, but how do you motivate them to do the right thing? So did I go too much on a tangent from what you were saying? No, no I'm just listening. Okay. I, you know, I took that, what, what makes success from your synergy and relationships and how easy it is to crumble mm -hmm. based on one decision. And then I took the lens of what are you using to motivate them? That, it, you know, is it transactional? You know, you do this because I'm paying you to do this. Or are we getting into that transformational kind of work where there's synergy, we all believe the same thing, that employee engagement effort that's going on in a lot of workplaces these days. Um, we, we invest into all of that. And sometimes you just need somebody to, to counter what the common thought is on what's going on. So if it fails, is it because the budget's not there or did it fail because of something else in the, in the mix? In regards to the program or just in general? Any program, whatever your success yeah. is. Like, yeah, that's what I'm referring to, like just the program? Yeah. So whatever <clears throat> you're wanting to be successful, is it the synergy of the team and the relationships? Is it in the motivation? Is it in the leadership? You know, are things not being communicated well? Which can quite often be the case. Um, but there's a lot of different facets to figure out why something fails. So, I know, in, with military is different than my experience so i'm not trying to add into that yeah. is military different as far as here's your structure and here's what you do end of story no it's not like that okay uh, so how does it work with you guys so, leadership creativity right um i know um you know one of the things that i remember when john was uh, would ask me a lot of questions on it you know, and you, you bring up some valid points, but, you know, I, I sit back and, you know, today, um, probably over the last couple of years, I would say, I don't look at programs no more different than a lot of different things, but I, I you, you do have to have a good leader, right? And really good leaders have, are creative, right? Not right. only are they disciplined, but they're creative. Uh, and they're able to take things to a different level that either you don't see. Um, so, a, you know, if you're making a junior leader and you're, you're promoting a junior leader and you're mentoring a junior leader, what you want is you want that, you want to see that person be creative. That's what I want at least. Right. And when you see that you, well, me personally, um, uh, I encourage it. Um, you know, I know that sometimes I'm going to have to shoot them down. I know sometimes I'm going to have to tell them, hey, you know, that's not what we're looking for. But overall, I'm going to tell them, hey, you know what, that's a really good idea. But unfortunately, it's not, you know, we, we can't do that. You know, we don't have $6 million that we can spend on that. Mm -hmm. but um, that's good, but, though. I mean, that is one of the tenets of building good leaders and 
succession planning is being that mentor to tell them not no, but not now. Right. Or here's what you need, you know, yes, if you can get this done. But right. That's a great word. That, I mean, that's if credit to you as well to be able to <laughs> teach them that yeah. it's not. That's no. the word. That's the word I, that's the word I try to educate most people on. Mentorship. If. If. If I can, perf- if I can get this. Let's dig that out. Uh, I can <laughs> perform this, right? Uh-huh. If you give me this. I can overcome this, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's a that's one of those words that you know when you're speaking to really high executives on my side. You know, it's uh, we throw that word around like, yeah, I can definitely do that if mm-hmm. you give wow. me the following things. We stumble onto something that we totally agree about. Yeah. So that that's one of the things that I coach on is approach everything with yes if not no because mm-hmm. a lot of times it's just no because we can't afford it no because we can't get people no because uh, 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 i will decide what i can come up with you tell me the yes if and then name your parameters and i'll see if i can get you there yeah but is that what you're saying absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. i totally yeah. agree the the big thing when you get a, a yes if person is making sure that the creativity is there, right? Because right. if if you don't have the creative nature, uh, you're normally going to end up either with it. Because it's easier for us to like, yeah, obviously even in small business world, it's easier to overshoot a project with a potential, um, you know, if, if you're thinking it's only going to cost $5 and it ends up costing you and you're, you project it's going to cost you $10 and then it ends up costing you $5, that's still a profit for you, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, that's something that if you're building a relationship on, you'll be like, hey, you know what? We can do this next time and it'll be cheaper. Right. And, uh, and that's, that's a good thing in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or finding out that downstream is even more savings because you spent a little bit up front yeah definitely and now you, you know more okay yeah yeah definitely so if you even spend too much you know on the front end of creating something but in the long run it creates this long term it's, it's no different than like probably going and buying tires for your car right so if you buy a tire for your car and you know you're only going to get you know twenty thousand miles out of it uh but you end up you know getting more um or if you spend more to get, uh, you know, eighty thousand miles, mm-hmm. then you don't have to worry about anything, right? Right. For a while, right? And, and it's the same thing. It's the same concept. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the value proposition of whatever you're looking at. But you're right. The innovation, creativity, can conquer so much that planning and budget can't. And I, I'm biased because of nursing, but as much as you know the hospital engineering department would get frustrated with us for rigging everything <laughs> nurses can pretty much rig up anything i mean we'll find a way around most things um and so and that's another concept that i'll bring in as far as theory versus what we do that the right thing the the right thing has to be the easiest thing so if you want people to do the right thing, you need to make it the easiest. And sometimes you have to add hard stops. So 
in a drill press, you have to use both your thumbs to even make it work. Therefore, making sure your thumbs aren't getting pressed. Um, but in nursing, do you know what I'm, are you following me on this one? Or do you think, or am I just biased? Just, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, when there's no other way to come up to get something figured out, you know, tape up a Foley cath to tape down an NG tube to make something work when you don't have the supplies. Um, nurses are creative, you know, in wound care. How do you, how do you get the ostomy bag to stick on? Or how do you clean that off in a certain way? And I think we do it out of necessity. You know, we either don't have the supplies, but I mean, the things we're dealing with a lot of times can't wait. So you do the best you can. That's that, true. A lot of innovation, creativity um, comes for there. And sometimes it just makes me laugh <laughs> when I think of some of the stuff we did, but it works. So my point with that is creativity, you know, and innovation can be coupled with a followed up at least with making it the right thing to do. So, hey, that worked, but now let's put the structure in place to make sure it doesn't go wrong. So, like a protocol. You're talking about a protocol. Protocol, policies, procedures, right. right. Now that now it's a buzzkill, yeah. right? All the fun is gone. But um, you want to make sure it's right, I, too. Yeah. I, don't, I personally don't see a lot of, and this is just me speaking, right, from... Mm-hmm simple procedures, right? Following simple procedures to, to get you through uh, a checklist, right? So the military uses a lot of checklists, especially me in the Air Force, mm-hmm. you know, Air Force side uh, flying and everything's a checklist. Uh, I don't really see it as a, like it can be mundane sometimes, right? But even in the emergency room, like you're practicing emergency medicine or critical care and, you know, you're either doing an intubation or central line. Um, there's a there's a procedure that you follow. Uh, do I, I don't see it as a buzzkill. It's a safety net in my opinion. um, That it's like you said, you know, if it's the right thing and it's the easiest thing, then that's the the route you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or right. That's how you said it. Yeah. Um, And that's, you know, part of the lean process too with sick, with Six Sigma and Lean is, um, is it, no, I don't want to guess at it. Um, but yeah, if, if what, whatever the right thing is, is not the easiest thing, people are going to work around it and find the easiest thing. So adapt, right. And just make sure that that's the easiest thing. Yeah. So it sounds easier than it is, but because nurses, are cra- that- we're, they're crafty. <laughs> I was so yeah, proud of my well, sometimes, but it's like wow. Yeah. No, there's definitely a lot of crafty people out there that come up with stuff that you know I would never think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and eventually they they might get rich off of it if it's a really great idea. But a lot of times, you know, it's the writing the policies that's a buzz buzz kill for me. So you you like structure, so that's good for you. But that's a typical I do like as well. <laughs> I do like structure, but at the same time, um, I live in like an insane environment, right? Because there is no structure to people coming in critically ill or trauma patients or, you know, you follow your, your training and you kind of go with it. And then that's really about it. And the same thing on the military side, right? Like, I mean, you know, you, you follow your training, 
you know, you, you stay on your little algorithm that you have in your head uh, when stuff starts going wrong. And then, of course, you go straight into, you know, a lot of communication and then the communication turns into like this creative nature of trying to get out of this bad situation that you're in. Yeah, that makes me think of a question that I wanted to ask you, though, and um, I know it's coming out of the blue and you're not prepared for it, so we'll see. But was there ever a time that you just went forward with blind faith that this is my training, this is what I'm supposed to do? And I'm going to do it. And, and absolutely you had no other input <laughs> or anything else besides that. And you just went for it because that's what yeah. you were told to do. Can yes. you describe it? Or is it anything you can talk about? Um, yeah. Um, so or when you I was talk in about it. how it made you feel at first, did you feel? Yeah. Uh, like no, you were so, out of control or in control? No, when you go in with blind faith. And like, so, you know, let's talk about like, let's, you know, breaching a, a door, right? For the first time. Live door. Yeah, right. You're going to go into somebody's home. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, you're going to go into, you're in a, you're in a, you're going to go hit a bad guy, right? Uh, there is no, <laughs> there is nothing scarier than that feeling right uh and at the same time you know it feels like a year before the door is either kicked in the door is blown before um uh, or before even your hand you know goes through it or before you go through it uh by the time it's over, yeah, I mean, it's it's so fast, but at the same time, it just lingers in your soul forever. Um, and that's, to me, that's blind faith, right? Like you're, you're believing, you know, your, your finger's going to work, your, the ammo is going to work, the trigger's going to work the your you know your body armor is going to work uh your you know your team behind you is going to follow you in yeah that's that's probably one of those moments where and, and you know for all the and I, I know you have like military dudes that work with you so that, those are moments that you you have blind faith um you know when you launch on an aircraft uh you have a lot of blind faith that the pilots are doing the right thing and, you know, you're sitting in the back and you're taking care of patients or whatever. And, you know, you, you're, you don't know what's going on outside. <laughs> you're, you're focused just solely on the patient in the aircraft. So, um, yeah, those, those are blind faith moments. Yeah. Now what, okay. So for people, I remember your story. But for anybody who's listening that doesn't know it, how do you put together kicking in a door with a healthcare provider? You're a nurse practitioner and a critical care nurse. But when do you kick in doors? That was how, before. How did that work into your into your yeah. story? That was before that. So I mean, I was in the army and you know, I was doing that previously and I was doing it until like two thousand five. 
even though I was a RN, I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't until I got hurt that I switched careers. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Not really. Okay. You're very humble. Very good. So, um, yeah, because whenever I think about it, you know, I just think of nursing, but then I have the blessing and the privilege of, I work in a hospital that if I go outside, okay, yeah, there's traffic. There's no bombs or people with guns or, you know, probably nobody who wants to kill me. Yeah. Um, so I'm able to focus on the patients. I'm able to focus on um, the things in front of me without having to worry about that. So comprehending some of the things that you're talking about, I can't. I mean, it's that bounded rationality that there's no way I can understand that because I've never had to live through it. I can try. I can try and imagine it and I can think about it. Um, but to truly get it, you know, I don't think unless you've experienced it, you really can. So I do want to give you due credit on that um, for accomplishing the job and still, um, gosh, coming back alive is, you know, geez. It, was that the, you, you made it sound like being deployed overseas was a success, that that's what you wanted. Is that, was that the truth? I think everybody that wanted to go overseas didn't get to go overseas. I know for a fact that there are guys that have gotten hurt along the way to include myself, right? Like, I mean, I got hurt in training um, and it, you know, it put a gap between deployments. I know guys that have never deployed because they, they got hurt. Uh, you know, they broke bones, they broke their backs. Um, and, you know, they, they wanted to go overseas. Uh, I don't look at them uh, any less, right? Because, I mean, we're still friends, a lot of us. But it's, it's a very different, it's very different when your goal is to, you know, go fight next to your brother. Uh, and, you know, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a completely different So going Different over, thing. wanting to go overseas, is it just for the experience of it to go overseas and to travel or is the crux of it that you want to go fight or protect or where is the motivation to go overseas? Well, what, it all depends on you. Well, right, right. But for you and those that you know, what, what was it? I mean, that's what we trained for. That's, that was our job, right? Our, our, you know, your, your position as, as a warrior isn't to sit at home. Your position as a warrior isn't to you know, not be ready for the altercation, right? There are people right now that are training 200 times harder than every American, Yes. Uh, and they probably outnumber us, you know, 60 to one. Good people or bad people? Bad people, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about nations, right? Mm -hmm. Around the world that are currently getting their shit together and 
you know, and maybe even saber rattling, you know, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, when you when you look at people that are indoctrinated into uh, communism, that are indoctrinated into a religion that is kind of been hijacked, in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're you know, their whole objective is to destroy you. Like their whole objective, and it's not even to like, you know, I'm gonna go and take your car, right? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna break the windows in your car. I'm gonna slash the tires. That's not their objective. Their objective is to destroy you, and then take everything from you. Understand destruction is destruction, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you have a group of people that their objective is to stop it from happening, then that's their objective. So it goes back to what you said earlier, right? So how do you, how do you select people for this? Well, you, you, you go through a selection process, you go through all these other, you know, schools and, and you train them and then you let them be creative, right? And you educate them on the, on your, on the adversary. And as they start to learn and it's no different than a business, right? The only difference is in business, you know, they call it civilized, but there's a lot of businesses that put a lot of people, you know, other businesses completely out of business. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then those guys have no jobs and they're destroyed. The only yeah. difference is one is kinetic warfare, right? Sometimes it's psychological uh, and sometimes it's both right. Psychological and kinetic, you know, meaning that, you know, you pick up a weapon and you shoot somebody or you drop a bomb or you put a bomb in the road and blow somebody up. That's the difference. When you go into business, people go after you with attorneys and lawsuits and whatever to destroy you. Uh, and sometimes they just build around you because you're, you're trying to um, not really pay attention to what's developing around you. Right. That's what happens a lot of times. So you, you don't, you don't pay attention to the environment and the situation develops around you. Eventually you're, you're surrounded just like Genghis Khan would do, right? He would just surround you and destroy everything on the way in. So I'm going to give you, Machiavelli's my guy, right? So um, not a nice guy, <laughs> but a brilliant strategist. So um, with what you're talking about, it makes me think of one of the quotes that I like from him and I'll tell you about it and just I'll I'll let you respond from your military background. And then again, as a business person, because we're both entrepreneurs as well, starting our own businesses and doing that. So I'm curious about your take on Machiavelli's quote that you should treat your enemies so that revenge is never an option. Hmm, It's a good quote. I love it. It's true. I mean, I can see in his world that strategy and military actions to protect royalty and you do you kill them all and their and their kids and you make sure that nobody rises up but you know, since we don't do that now um but in military versus business how, well, same application or no technically they kind of do right so you you do it with with trade you do it with finance you do it with goods you do it with food products and industrial stuff, right? 
So if you want to develop a country, then you go in and you, you develop it, right? Uh, you put people in place, you try to like help it out, take, um, you know, take Kuwait, for instance, right? So, I mean, Kuwait's like, you know, this massive oil reservoir, uh, but it, it wasn't like that, right? It wasn't like that previously. And, you know, eventually people were like, hey, you know, they have this resource. Uh, let's talk to them. Let's buy it from them and let's get this resource. And then at the same time, um, you know, we can educate them and we can put hospitals there and, you know, airports and big buildings and fancy cars and, uh, yeah, versus so If we do that, don't. there's other people that want to destroy it and just take it, right? Versus trade sure. that we believe in, more of a democratic kind of thing and more likable for sure. Um, but then you have somebody who's willing to just go in and wreck it all just to take it. Did, Correct. Did we leave them alone to our own detriment? Or how do you protect against that? Well, that's where your tax dollars come into play, right? And strategists who sit back and, man, I wish I could remember the guy that wrote the Um, and I, I really, I wish I could remember this guy's name, but so this guy, uh, I don't really remember when it was, but he wrote a letter, uh, discussing about, you know, keeping the, the waterways protected. Right. And if you kept mm -hmm. the waterways protected, that basically you would increase trade and you would increase revenue and you would have this and you would have that. So as you develop this stuff, you know, develop a country and a resource, right? Uh, once again, a relationship, right? A relationship with the country, mm -hmm. uh, with the people. And you buy their stuff. At the same time, uh, there's going to have to be a protected shipping lane. There's going to have to be a protected uh, airspace for the area. So that way you can get those resources. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people that don't like the military, right? Um, because they think it's like overspending or whatever. Yeah, from their safe bed at night. Yeah. But yeah. I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality is, like, you know, um, you know, if you if you look at oil production at home, when you shut down oil production, it only gives you one option, right? Which is going to be either offshore or it's going to be from another country. Mm -hmm. And so that oil is now sent here. And so you need that protected lane. And that protected lane has got to be protected from two different resources. And those resources is one, the, the sea lane, and then the other is going to be the air lane. And if that airspace, because you can attack any you know, ship from air, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, having, having those two lanes maintained are a necessity. But I, I'm pretty sure that most people don't pay attention to that part. They just, 
you know, they walk up to Walmart and get out of their car and walk inside and buy whatever and don't ever think twice about how it ever got there, right? Or who made it or how much protection went involved to to get it here. Yeah, I think if people thought about it too much, they'd really get a glimpse of how precarious our supply chain logistics and everything can be. Uh, you know, if, if it goes down or something happens, how much one wrinkle would really impact everything downstream immensely. Um, and like you were saying, you know, if they don't like the military, that's fine, but they like their gas. They like their yeah, they like imported going to, goods from, from Alibaba. They want so to turn on their Dell computers. They want to turn yeah. on their Apple, say, you know, whatever, uh, you know, their plasma TVs and yeah. chill out. Right. Uh, but it all comes from somewhere. And even here in the United States, right? Like, so if you have, you know, if you're a cattle producer, you know, there's there's work that goes into it. And those, you know, the protection, the basic protection from the police force uh, is a necessity, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> People, you know, I, and when, you, when I hear about over the last two years and you're seeing, you know, crimes, spike all over the place even here in texas right uh so it's like it's just the dumbest like thing it. i've ever seen even here in texas you know here is i i know for a fact that there's a lot more armed citizens yes. here than probably anywhere else in the, in the world mm-hmm. right now well, yeah, that could be a whole nother episode. <laughs> and probably will be. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I don't think people understand how much goes into the safety and the importance. And I'm not military to, I mean, my family has been, but I don't want to talk out of turn. But I, just, I feel so compelled to thank our military so much and encourage our leaders to keep it over there. I this has been the first time ever in my life. And I think I shared this with you before that I have ever felt even potentially at risk at home. Yeah. Something being able to come over here to hurt us and really, I mean, it, I've never had to think about it before. That is, is this the time, is this the generation that somebody's going to have to fight? And that it just makes me more and more proud of our military because when you said going over overseas, Thank you, because that keeps it over there. To go to the fight is much better than doing it here at home. In my book, being here at home. Um, but this this time frame in the last year, two years, is the first time I've ever even felt the least bit um, concerned that mm-hmm. it might make it over here. It being more terrorism or actually a physical... You know, somebody wants something different for us than what we've done. Yeah, and, yeah, no, you know, we have to stand up for it. So that's more of a thought than a question, but I'll be quiet and let you respond if you have something. No, no. Hey, you know what I did want to talk about? Um, okay. You know, the other day you brought up like this pod thing, and I would love for you to share that pod idea. My pod, I- pod, P-O-D, not pot, P-O-T. Yeah, yeah. It's pod. So, gosh, how did we even get on that topic? We were talking 
This is I'm really sure good. I I, yeah. I'm sure I chased a squirrel in a conversation and ended up uh, way far away from wherever we started off from. So well, you you in that we were talking about um, mobile businesses and that more and more mobile healthcare directed mobile health right to home and then directed to home. So we had got on the topic of why couldn't you put a pseudo hospital room in a pod delivered to your driveway? Mm-hmm. Um, if the hospitals are overrun or if that's what you can afford, why not? And doing the yes, if you being you crushing my dreams of innovation, <laughs> <laughs> you brought up the yes, if you have appropriate energy. Yes. If you have appropriate gas and electric. Yes. If you have staffing, your you know, appropriate staffing, which I brought up the virtual. Right. Um, ICUs and things like that in the world. But um, yeah, it was just that I think bringing things to the people at home were, is going to be more community-based than hospital-based anymore, that we can do more and more at home. And even if it, in, it will probably need to actually entail knowing when to say when. Um, we do crazy heroics. Um, and I, you know, if it's your family, I know we all want that done. And, you know, if we have the resources to do it, we should be glad to do it. But at what point do we recognize that the resources aren't there? And what do we need to do? Um, you're talking about know. hospital resources or you're talking about the, the pod resource? Both, actually. Um, so if the hospitals are full, who gets a pod? Or is it even feasible in the first place? Right. I mean, normally in turbulent times, you centralize, you bring everything together and put it in one spot and centralize. And this is taking the opposite approach that when people are starting to get sicker to keep them at home and keep them um, diversified or um, separate. So makes me think of Pearl Harbor. Wasn't that one of the things from Pearl Harbor that we had all the boats in the harbor? At once they were all centralized to be protected, but then <clears throat> when they bombed the harbor, nobody could get out. Am I thinking of that right? Yeah, or they had all the battleships. <laughs> had the battleships. But, um, it's a different way of thinking. So the it made me it just made me think that bringing things to the community level rather than to the hospital where the resources are might be an option but you had different thoughts than i did on that um, you were well, more resource focused i think or is what i got from it <laughs> i i was just i thought it was a good idea it's just overall it's the logistical part of you know dropping off a pot you know how long is it going to be there how long what you know what is going to be your length of stay in the pod you know as far as the so let's say it's a it's an ICU room right mm-hmm. I think that's what you were going for it was like an ICU room and you know that way the family could go in and out of the pod and visit and whatnot and um, but yeah it's it's the logistical part which is going to be you know the oxygen you know how's the oxygen going to be maintained how's mm-hmm. the or the, we can switch switch it around maybe the things that are at home are not the critical ones, but even more intent on focusing on 
general illness, hospice, moving folks out for that to be at home mm-hmm. and then just leave the hospital. I mean, it's pretty much the way it is now. I mean, if you're in the hospital, you're sick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be another way to look at it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's going to have to be some innovation for healthcare and hospitals and getting it all done because the way it is now is just not hanging in there. <laughs> um, the sustainability is questionable. To me, that's just my opinion. But was that was that the the whole pod thing that you were talking about? Because I really yeah. had that great idea of setting up ICUs in hospitals in a wheel model and putting the pharmacist in the middle like a bartender. Yeah. And just have, you know, your six or eight patients and then the pharmacist is the bartender to connect the IVs to the right medicines and handle the drips and calculations. And the nurse's job is just to maintain the line. I think that would mm. be, I think it would work. <laughs> It'd be boring for the pharmacist, but. I think it'd be a lot of work for the pharmacist, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> this <laughs> I think is it'd true. be a lot of work. One more reason why I would not be a pharmacist. Yeah, Based I mean, intelligence being more of the reason and poor calculations. But that is, that's a lot of math and yeah, chemistry. Yeah. yeah. They can have it. So um, I'm trying to think if there's anything more with that. That was with a long pod. conversation with the pods that we had before, and I, I, I feel like I'm missing something with it. Well, I just, I know that you brought up the pharmacist thing, and, and uh, I thought the pod thing overall is like, without sounding like a good idea, fairy. It's, it's a good idea, but it's also like a logistical nightmare because I think you were talking about like you know, if Amazon can deliver this, well, why can't they just deliver a pod and then, you know, the, mm-hmm. you, you assign a nurse and a doctor to it and then the nurses and the doctor basically manage the patient. Um, and obviously, you know, and for me, it would be not just managing the patient, but, you know, also if there's a code, you know, how do you manage the code piece to it? Um, you know, is there do you make the patient a DNR so that way if there there is a code you don't have to worry about it you know because you know this that and the other or, um, we're probably not it, too, we're probably like one good idea away from setting people up with um, the thumper right for CPR compressions to do something like that and just go ahead and put a put pacer patches on that you can do that or put internal leads on to shock them remotely and I don't know. That is, I mean, that's the crux. And that going back full circle to creativity and innovation, somebody's going to come up with that other piece, right? So we're now we're at the yes, if part. I don't have a clue about the if, how to get all those things done. That's a lot of money. Somebody's got a lot of money. Yeah, Not lot me, of money. but <laughs> yeah. or good ideas on how to do it or, you know, whatever. But I don't know. It, you know, these are the things that bubble up that, you know, you look at where the gaps are, what's not working, and and again, stealing from commerce, right? If Amazon can deliver it, why not? What is it different than parking an ambulance in your driveway? I mean, you want the medics and everything else, but they're fully equipped anymore. They're doing um, what the stroke care pre-hospital now, and 
you would know this better than I would right now, but they're starting the stroke care, the thrombolytics ahead of time. They're completely bypassing the ER for to go straight to the cath lab for an MI. I mean, it's crazy how much we're pushing out of the hospital. Crazy in a good way, I think. It's definitely they, proactive. Yeah. It's definitely proactive. Going back to the protocols, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the protocol. You know, you look at the EKG. Is it a STEMI? Yes, it's STEMI. Boom. Mm-hmm. You continue with the heart alert or whatever it is it's called. And it goes to the cath lab at that point And the cardiologist takes over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so now look at our watches. I mean, we can do EKGs just from our watch. Not me. I I have an old school watch that just has uh, three little hands on it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but that works for you, though. (laughs) But you can do, I mean, it's pulse ox, EKG, and everything on your watch right there. So what if you just get that hooked to Google? It probably already is. I mean, I figured you could probably do that with telemedicine and, you know, have your doc evaluate you on a telemedicine call and that kind of stuff. Yeah, or just if all of a sudden it picks up VTAC, it sends your Google location and off you go. Um, but I still think it's weird on my watch. You know, it has the pulse ox, it has the EKG, it has all of my biometrics on it and everything. But I still have to punch in my code to log in to get it to open up and connect. I'm like, you should know me <laughs> if it's my wrist <laughs> or not. But I'm no, the same here's person. my number anyway. Yeah. So that's just me laughing at it, but. Yeah, it's amazing what they can do. Kind of scary if you think about it. Um, and again, that's a whole other conversation. Go on hours for that. But um, how do you, how do you how do you coach people on your side? Like, and, and I, I I remember when I first talked to you about this. Um, I remember thinking to myself, like, I would never, and I and I get it like being an executive and having issues and I definitely get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the stress, uh, especially when the, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, probably the hardest part is not so much having success, but not having the success that you want. Correct. That's exactly. probably the that's probably the hardest part, right? So like you, like a lot of people will say, hey, you know, you did great on, you know, making this team better at this. And I'm like, yeah, but I was looking at this big picture, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> My picture failed. Right. But, you know, I, I get that this one section uh, uh, did well, right? And, and yeah, those guys deserve a lot of credit, but this is what I wanted. Right. Uh, and I th- so how how do you how do you coach somebody to make somebody better in that sense? Like, hey, you know what? I I, I don't know what you do. Like, do you yeah. just say, hey, uh, be grateful for the for the win, or do you say, hey, there's nothing wrong with not getting everything that you want? Yeah. Well, I don't. Part of me wanted to joke that you know I just go around giving people hugs, but um. <laughs> I, we, I do have these conversations with people and a lot of the hard part is defining success. You know, w- what is success? Um, I was asked to speak in front of students on how, how I got to be successful. I'm like, am I? I, I don't know this. 
for sure. I mean, I feel okay, but I don't know that I'm successful. And that depends on how you define it. And that's when you really get into the, the theory and um, my approaches with Carl Jung, the Jungian philosophy. Um, but you have to identify what that is. And to take that philosophy into your personal goals is one thing, right? So evaluate, um, do I even want to be in this job? I want to transition out, but I, you know, I want to start before I, I don't want to get fired before I have to start looking. So I'm going to start looking out. And the conversation is around, well, what makes you grateful? What makes you happy and satisfied and purposeful about this job? And they might go through the relationships, the output, the care that's being given, the product or what they do for the community. And I, that's great. That makes them happy. And, and that is what they get to do every day at their job. And then when I ask, you know, well, what makes you frustrated? What makes you want to leave? And some of those answers are, you know, board members keep getting in my way or, um, you know, the, you know, just babysitting all the, the drama of the staff and doing things like that, that makes it not worth it. And then you have two discussions. Can you find what gratifies you elsewhere as easily? Or can you approach it differently and fix what's broken? Because typically, whether you're unhappy with your life, with anything, there's a, a mismatch between your values and goals and aligning that with your actions. I want to be happy and I want to um, have a happy family life. But you're, you're motivated by money and status and other things. So your motivation and your goals aren't matched the realization that you're probably going to have to give up some of the money and the time to be with your family, to be a good family guy. Mm. Um, and when people realize that it's, and I don't approach it with any judgment at all, because part of the acceptance is in any situation, a person is doing the best they can at that very moment. Now they might be able to do it better the next day, or somebody else could do it differently and better. But at that very moment for that person, they're doing the best that they can. And that's a different thought in the workplace than it is anywhere else. Because counselings are a big deal. Performance improvements are a big deal. And they really shouldn't be. If we all assume that everybody's there wanting to do a good job, then telling them how to do it better should be a favor to them. It should be a good conversation. A, a coaching issue. Um, so accepting that everybody's doing the best they can changes so the framework. So do you think if, uh, if you change the word from evaluation to coaching, it, it would alter people's perception? Or I, Just changing the word probably wouldn't be enough. You have to change your own actions. Yeah. Um, I, you probably had it too, where once a year you get called into the office and you get this overbearing lowdown of everything you did wrong for the year. And it's getting better because they're starting to include some good things um, in the evals. Like what? <laughs> um, um, well, if you do your own, if you get to do your own self-eval ahead of time, you can add in the things that you did well. Um, 
but hopefully there's examples. So I always encourage myself to put down examples, not just of here's, here's what I rank you or rate you as, but here's the story behind what I'm talking about. So um, takes exceptional care of patients, goes above and beyond. Okay, so here's the story of how I saw you treating a patient above and beyond what anybody would have expected and how much it made a difference in their life and include that as a positive. And then the same thing for if there's an opportunity to improve, let's be specific. And also a pet peeve of mine is that there should be no surprises on that eval. Um, there should be nothing on that eval that you haven't heard before. Because if you're coaching, it should have been in the moment, right? If you see it, just say, you know, the best boss I ever had, just he called me up and said, stop it. Okay. <laughs> um, and that was it. He's like, that's not what you want to do. I'm like, oh, all right. And where some people would have been, you know, didn't that upset you? I'm like, no, he didn't want me to do it. He said, stop it. Okay. I'd rather him tell me right there in the moment. So it didn't get any worse or become any more public or anything else, but no, it, it was truthful and at the right opportunity. The other thing you can do is just, um, instead of once a year, just do it in the moment and do more of less of, I want you to do more of this, less of this as an example. And that, that takes some of the weight off of any judgments, but really just, I mean, take the judgment away. It's not, you know, you're terrible. It's hate. You didn't hit that one out of the park. So let's address, you know, let's take a look at what it was that kept it from being a success and make sure you're equipped to do it right the next time. So as a leader, do you, have you ever followed up with somebody and found out that it was your own failure that made them not successful? Yes. Okay. Isn't that hard to admit? I have had to do that too. And it's hard. No, to no, it's not hard to admit. Um, well, some of it has just been selecting the wrong person for the wrong position, uh, which I can tell you I've done in the past. Right. Sure, uh, and it's not so much that they were wrong from the get-go. It was more of the presentation. Yeah, as you know, when you hire somebody, it's like, hey, you know, this is the direction. This is what I want. The, you know, these are, you know, this is my intent. My intent is for you to create this and build this. I, I'll give you everything you need. Just let me know, right? And then you, month goes by and it's like, ask a question. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm bogged down. I'm like, why are you bogged down? And then, you know, it's, it's for a lot of different reasons other than the program that they're running. So, um, yeah, no, I've, I've definitely, and multiple times, right? Um, but I, I take the blame myself, right? But I also have to hold that person accountable. Uh, right. because, because I know, uh, but as far as like, have I ever sent somebody deliberately out to fail? Right. Oh. The answer to that is no. Oh. Yeah. Um, which is a big giant difference, right? Absolutely. I mean, that, that just makes my heart hurt to think about. I mean, cause that hurts as a leader when you recognize that you have not equipped somebody to succeed and whether well, it's materials or removing a barrier or teaching them or. Well, like most said, of that, 
yeah, wrong no, person. It, it, mostly it was choosing the wrong person, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't so much like I knew ahead of time. Like, hey, you know what? I'm going to build this person and I'm going to take them. I'm going to mold them and mm-hmm. give them everything. And then, boom. Uh, I've had, you know, people that have completely destroyed a program. Uh, and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't understand. Can, can you explain this to me, right? That escalated you, you, quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the irony is that, so the one person that did destroy the program, right, um, was doing it with good intent. And I ended, at the end, when we had the conversation, like, hey, why are you doing this, right? Uh, I found out why. And it was actually a really good thing. Because the program was so broken uh, that, you know, people had taken things and like put patchwork and patchwork and patchwork, and it was no longer stable. Mm-hmm. So you, you had to get to the root of the entire thing and then uh, start all over. So it was like easier just to destroy all everything altogether and start the program all over again, uh, which kind of like, you know, freaks a lot of people out, right? You, you like leave them um, to, and especially in healthcare, right? So like, mm-hmm. you know, leave somebody alone, you know, for, couple of weeks with the program and then they're like, Hey, yeah, you know what? I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. You know what? We're burning this book, burning that book, destroying this drive. And as a matter of fact, we're starting all over again. And it's like, what? <laughs> right. But then, uh, the, then again, have a better product. I can tell you that right now. It was a better product in the long run. Right. Uh, it took a little extra time to develop and put the correct pieces together. Uh, once it was explained to me, um, but, you know, initially, like everybody around this person was like, oh, my God, this person's crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was, yeah, I was kind of, I was a little, you know, like questioning <laughs> my decision, right? Like, did I make the right choice in picking this person? And I'd already been, I mean, I've, I've been burnt several times. Like, there's, you don't get to, in leadership positions by it. Right. You've learned are a gonna, lot. <laughs> yeah, people are going to burn you, right? There's yeah. no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, so, yeah. Um, but at, in the long run, it was the right thing to do, and, and I was extremely grateful. Mm-hmm. But then since it's what we always do is to go back and evaluate and assess, you know, how, how it could have been better. Could communication have been better for those weeks that they were unattended? Could controls have been in place in the first place so that it hadn't been patchworked so much? Um, you kind of deconstruct it in a way that you can take your notes and make sure that it doesn't happen twice. You know, that, oh, we need to be measuring this along the way just to make sure this doesn't happen again. To get some understanding well, you, or control in place. So that goes back to history, right? Like, you uh, know, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big history buff. So, you know, I, I read a lot of books and you know, the, the, what I've learned throughout my military career is that take lessons learned, write them down, right? Write down this lesson learned along the way. And that way you understand later on um, and you go back and open up your little notebook and you're like, Oh yeah, I remember this one thing. And I totally forgot about this. Right. And, uh, 
it's a it, to me it's it's a it's a great little memoir to just like keep around um and in this scenario it's the same thing right so it was like hey you know if i ever take over this program or if i ever get stuck in a situation similar to this you know make sure that i understand you know the following two things have to work and then if they don't understand that you have to get to the root cause and destroy the entire thing and then start all over again Mm -hmm. versus trying to do patchwork which ends up creating more work in the long run going back to what is right you know doing what is right and sometimes the easy route is you know destroying the entire program and start all over again i'm with you totally with you and then that goes back to like evaluations right so you're sitting there and you know, um, yeah, I can tell you right now, like talking to people in general in regards to evaluations or coaching or telling them exactly what they're doing well and what they're not doing well at. Um, for, a, I want to say for a lot of like even first and even middle and even probably long time supervisors, like that, that can be strenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's like any, cause in a, and I don't know what it's like for you, like, you know, on the executive side. Right. But there are a lot of people that have like this misconception of themselves that they yes. are just like this awesome person and they've done this, that, and the other, and they have like a million dollars in their account and they don't understand why the world doesn't like them or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you, I, you know, I work with people like that and I'm just like, uh, nobody likes you because you're lazy and you don't like your job and you tell everybody you don't like your job and... <laughs> okay. And you kind of stink and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, and it's just, you know, this is me being sarcastic, but it's just. Well, you're spot on, though. It's self-awareness. And and that's part of it that they might be looking at it as, oh, it's just conversation or, oh, it's just me venting and not realizing that it's all the time or how it makes them look. Right. A true a real friend is going to tell you that you have mustard on your lip or the toilet paper stuck to your shoe. And probably because it's work and people are uncomfortable, they're not telling them, hey, look, when you do that, it's making you sound disenchanted with your job or um, cranky. And nobody's telling them that. So how do they get to be self-aware if people don't speak up? If you don't have that trust atmosphere to um, speak up and tell everybody that. So, again, that's probably more for another whole that could be a whole nother hour just talking about trust and coaching and things like that but um the self-awareness is a big part of the coaching is why are you doing what you're doing or why do you feel that this defines success because um i've encouraged a couple of my clients you know write your evaluation from the point of your dog And that sounds weird, Mm -hmm. but your dog thinks you're very successful. You meet their needs all the time. Most of the time, you know, you get them food, you get them water, you love them, you hug them, you're there for them. You're their world. They think you're awesome. 
you're successful. So who says that's, that that isn't success? And I bring that forward when I, when I start talking about an engaged workforce. They say that success is, do you have a best friend at work? Do you get to do what you do best every day? Do you um, come in and do extra things at work? They think that that's an, an engaged and happy worker. I've had nurses that, you know, I want to work night shift because I can't afford a babysitter and my husband has to work these days. And I just, I need that structure of, I need to come to work and go home and that's all I need. Mm-hmm. And they are successful and happy with those parameters. But by, you know, Gallup, Prescani and the powers that be on what makes an engaged employee, she wouldn't be. So th- those things are a mismatch at that point too. So she's self-aware and she knows exactly what she needs to be successful in her life. It just doesn't match what the powers that be say. So we, we, should, we should do a whole nother one just on the practice of self-awareness. Because that's a big deal. Defining success and defining what's good or bad or... Something happened. 